is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we tell stories about everything, music, life, love, the arts, and of course, work, because it's such an important part of our lives. And that leads us also sometimes to talk about public policy, but only as it impacts workers and business owners. And this story goes to, well, the roots of a real problem. And I say roots because we're talking about hair. And actually the roots of a nation here. And the idea that men and women should be able to make a living free from excessive government interference. Why am I talking about hair? Tennessee recently passed a law that requires a license to do as a job what most of us do every day. We grow up doing it and sometimes do it for our children and our aging parents. But now this job requires a cosmetology license, which costs $35,000. And that job is washing hair. Occupational licensing, by the way, is what we're going to be talking about. But before we get into that, I wanted to join, have you join us, Tammy. Tammy Pritchard, a full-time police officer who is suing the state of Tennessee to be able to wash hair part-time because she can't afford to get that aforementioned license. Tammy, thanks for joining us. Hi, how you doing today? I'm very good, and how are you? All right. Tammy, tell me a little bit about your life, your family, and your childhood before we get into this seemingly crazy story about you in the state of Tennessee. Uh, well, I was a, I started out um, like in the beauty shop, working like with my sister and her friends. Um, my sister was a natural health care, but she had friends that was cosmetologists, so I would go in and help them during the summer and, you know, during school times when I get out of school, washing hair um, for friends, you know, to just make a little extra money. And then it also helped the beauticians um, where they could just, you know, go on and continue to do uh, other clients. So that was a little a good income for, you know, a teenager like me, young teenager. And then after that, I, you know, became a young parent, a young mother um, with three sons. So they even helped me as that. And then doing that, shampooing, and then I did college part-time and still raising my three sons. So it, it really, it was a great income. It was a great income. And, you know, you're being a, a, a little humble here. Your sister, by the way, Deborah Nuttall, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, she, mm-hmm. she pioneered the natural hair movement for African-American right. women and has a natural hairstyling salon as well. I mean, this is something that's been in your blood, your DNA, and your family yes. for a very yes. long time. For years, for years. For, I can say, um, my oldest son is going to be 20. Well, I'm going to go back to her oldest child. Her oldest child like 30-something years old, so she was doing that way even before she had her first child so we've been doing it for uh, 30 some years or plus yeah this is what you do and you know it's interesting you you know you obviously you said that washing hair you know helps pay some bills but you know we're talking about some important bills tammy like covering your health care expenses yes Mm -hmm. and it helped me take care of my three sons i I was able to get my first little car it helped me with being a young parent and um a young lady to um to go through school, uh, college. So it helped. It was a great, it did a great deal for me and a lot of other young friends that I know that wanted to be beauticians, that it helped them also. So when they came in with that law, it, it really hurt a lot of us. And, and my thing was, 
They wanted us to say, get off of welfare. They wanted the young women off welfare, but you come in and take from us and put us back on welfare. Yeah, and, and, and you, I, you, you, uh, you, you have this happen to you, and, and what's your turn? What do you do next? What, tell us the story. So the state says you can't do this anymore. Where do you get the gumption to sue the state? How did you get to that? And by the way, congratulations for having the courage to do that, Tammy. Well, well, I um, I was really upset about it, and I just sat back and thought about it. And me and my sister, we was, and she was, you know, upset about it. And so we sent out letters, and we, you know, we talked, went up to the board, and we talked to the board and everything. And they still like it was just none and board that they didn't hear us. And fortunately, God heard our cry, and He sent um, the Beacon Center to go and talk to someone else, and they gave my sister name. And then my sister gave my name. And so that's how we ended up getting with the Beacon Center that they, and they said that they would help us. So that's how we end up. And we'll be talking, uh, we'll be talking to uh, Braden Busek uh, from the Beacon Center in the next segment. We wanted to talk to the uh, legal aspect of this, but before we did that, Tammy, we wanted to dig into the personal aspect because the personal, mm-hmm. sadly here, became the legal through no fault of your own. So let's talk about right. the penalty. It turns out that penalty, I, I almost can't believe I'm going to read this sentence, penalty for shampooing without a license is six months in jail or a $500 fine, Tammy. And by the way, we know you're not going to prison, but $500 for each offense? Right. This this right. pretty much is a deterrent to you trying to do your job, right? And, and so there still is a lot of people that, especially like you had like a lot of young girls doing that in the shop helping their aunties. So if you come in and you said give them six months, like me, I was a college student. It, say if I was, was still would have been doing it, you would have messed up my college career because you're gonna send me to jail just because I was washing hair. I'm going to go to jail or I'm going to have to pay $500. And by the way, uh, you know, in my notes here, there's no school in Tennessee which offers classes in shampooing. At all. At all. Well, this is, you know, Tammy, thank you for doing what you did. Thank you for taking this case and making it public, being a voice for this case, fighting for your rights. And, you know, this is just one of those things and one of those stories where you just go, there's got to be a reason and so when we come back mm-hmm. on the other side of this break, oh my goodness, there's got to be a reason, right? Well, we're going to talk. Yes, we do. Well, we're going to talk to Braden, Braden Busek from the Beacon Center of Tennessee. And he's going to walk us through what's really going on with this law, why it came into being, and why he and the folks at the Beacon Center are standing up and fighting in the public square and in the courts for Tammy and so many of the women, and it is mostly women, and it's mostly African-American women this is attacking, and a lot of low-income women. And we're going to get some answers from Braden Busek and the fine work they're doing over at the Beacon Center of Tennessee. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we just heard a story that seems pretty un-American, actually. Tammy Pritchard being denied her opportunity to wash hair, something she and her family know a lot about, something she'd been doing all her life, and I can only assume there weren't customer complaints from her hair washing that caused the government to come in here and do this. And I can't imagine that there was any mass uh, a, a complaint to the federal government or the state government about this mass crisis with hair washers needing to be regulated. And so joining us to talk about this and where this sprang from, well, we had to bring on Braden Busek from the Beacon Center of Tennessee, whose tagline is empowering Tennesseans to take control of their own lives and their own vision of the American dream. And we love that tagline. Thanks so much for joining us, Braden. It's my pleasure, Lee. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Uh, you know, what's going on here? It, just give us an idea of where this law was coming from, because it could not have possibly come. And I, I know I, I'm not a betting man, but I would bet everything I own that this did not come from complaints from civilians about bad hair washing. If it did, we have found no evidence of it. Um, we've done <clears throat> a good bit of research into uh, trying to ascertain the actual harm that unlicensed shampooing could pose to consumers, and we can find minimal evidence, uh, really debatably no evidence, um, that this was in any way a harm to consumers. It really is, takes place against a backdrop of uh, a larger issue, which is the scourge of uh, occupational licensure requirements, um, which is literally permission from the government just to work. The numbers on it are pretty staggering. In the 1950s, there was something like 1 in 20 Americans needed a license to work. Those tended to take place in fields like doctor, dentist, lawyer, accountant, and so on. But in 2016, the number is closer to, I think it's 1 in 3 or 1 in 5. It's, it's down in that area. Um, and this despite the fact that more Americans work in fields that are service-oriented and ostensibly should be safer. Right. And, and so then the question comes... You know, where does this law come from? And I can, I can think of two reasons, Brayden, and, and let's spend some time on both of them. The first could be it's a straight revenue play. Um, the, the state needs the money. It could also be an anti-competitive play. Somebody who is in a certain business wants to block other people from competing with them, so they raise the barriers to entry. And what we mean by that, that's economic speak for saying we're making it too expensive for you to compete with us by only allowing a price tag that some bigger business could absorb. Talk about those two possibilities, and which one do you think is at work, or both? Well, uh, we allege that both of them are at work, um, and you know, you mentioned it before about the schools. You know, uh, the, if you study the licensure regime close up, you'll see that the state goes to great lengths to regulate uh, and specify that you have to get a license. It even tells the students right down to the very kind of kit that they need to buy from the schools. But as far as regulating the actual curriculum of the schools or requiring that a school teach the school teach the curriculum, they don't pre- appear to be particularly concerned about that. Um, so you can easily come away with the impression that uh, all of this is about generating fees for uh, the state itself and the schools. Um, and to your other point, which has to do about protecting uh, consumers, yes, I mean, economic protectionism is uh, unfortunately something that we allege is afoot afoot here. Um, The evidence of it is uh, all over the place. Um, I I think most people agree that this is something that their children do safely at home, um, is shampoo their own hair. There's really not a valid safety reason. 
but it is a way to deliver benefits to existing market participants. Um, I think an interesting statistic uh, that we uncovered is the Bureau of Labor actually keeps wage statistics for the shampooing field. And um, would you care to guess which two cities in America have the highest uh, wages per hour for shampooing? Um, Nashville and Memphis. Bingo. How about that? Um, I'm pretty good, huh? Yeah, you are. Uh, so the average per hourly wage for washing hair in Tennessee is $15 an hour. Um, and the next highest state, according to the Bureau of Labor, is New Jersey, and it's in the $10 range. Wow. And let's, let's think about or talk about this, this vague licensing requirement. Uh, we have here a couple of the things that you're going to get in the, three, the 300 hours of instruction. 300 hours of instruction. They want to have you learn about the theory and practice of shampooing. They want classes in draping a client in a clean towel, brushing hair in one-inch segments, and how to clean up blood, how to answer a phone properly, how to order a product, the composition of shampoos, and OSHA requirements. This is, this is almost Stalinistic, isn't it? Uh, Stalinistic is one term. Uh, to me, the, I think it just looks like pure busy work. I mean, I think you'd be hard-pressed to come up with 300 hours of curriculum relevant to shampooing. I mean, it's an expression, right? Lather, rinse, repeat. Yep. <laughs> um, that's, that's all it is. And we all do it safely to ourselves or, in many cases, a family member throughout the, our lives. Um, so, I mean, you know, if you think about it, the vast majority of that list actually has nothing to do with shampooing. You know, like, like Tammy was telling you, I mean, she just wants to wash hair. She doesn't care about answering the phone or running a store. Why does she have to know how to order product, let alone OSHA regulations? Um, it's just busy work designed to give students. Do the schools have their own lobbyists pushing this? Because I've got to think that this, I'm thinking of interested parties. Who benefits, who loses? I'm always thinking about winners and losers when the government gets involved. Because every time they do, they create a winner and a loser. Who, we know who the loser is. Who's the winner? Well, as it currently stands, since it is so difficult to become a shampooer, the big beneficiaries are, of course, people who have the license now, and furthermore, cosmetologists themselves, um, because cosmetologists are allowed to wash hair. And if shampooers could do that practice standing alone, that would eat into the profits of licensed cosmetologists. I think Tammy told me at one point in time, and I, I'd want to ask her, but I think she said that working part-time as a shampooer, in a salon, uh, she would get about $20 a hair wash um, of what the cosmetologist brought in for the service as a whole. That's really not bad money. No. Um, not bad at all. A lot of Americans would be nodding going, I'll take that, especially a lot of stay-at-home moms or stay-at-home dads. I mean, you're going, sure. wow, that's nice. It's part-time. I get to meet people. I, I get to have some nice conversations. Nice atmosphere. Um, it's always a friendly atmosphere. Every time I go to the barbershop, I go, what a nice place to have a nice conversation. A nice, decent place to have a part-time job. Tell us about the lawsuit against the state of Tennessee. What are you suing for, and how's it going? Uh, well, we've alleged that uh, a number of allegations. We've alleged, first and foremost, that uh, this violates ten- the right of Tennesseans to uh, pursue e- what's called economic liberty, that the pursuit of the American dream is, in fact, a constitutional right. You have a right to choose and select your career. Uh, I personally would tell you I think that the founders would consider it unrecognizable that in a court of law something all like the things that are recognized as constitutional rights, anything from abortion to uh, same-sex marriage to uh, 
child porno- virtual child pornography, lap dances, all of those things are, according to the courts, constitutionally protected. Yet if you say, I want to have and hold a good job, that's not accorded constitutional significance. And I think that's just completely upside down. Um, and so we allege that this violates her constitutional right to economic liberty. Uh, separately, we also allege Tennessee's got a really interesting constitutional provision. It's called an anti-monopolies provision, and it's in our equivalent of the Bill of Rights. But what it reads is, and get this, uh, monopolies and perpetuities are contrary to the genius of a free state and shall not be allowed. Wow, be still my heart. Love it. Yep, that, that's written in our Constitution. Now, our courts haven't always behaved that that's in our Constitution, um, and it doesn't get a whole lot of attention. But really, this is a state-sanctioned monopoly. Nobody else can do it unless you have the license, and currently it's difficult, if not impossible, to get that license. Um, and uh, you, you may, as you may or may not know, last year, about a year ago, the Supreme Court issued, the U.S. Supreme Court issued an opinion dinging the North Carolina Dental Board for characterizing teeth whitening as a practice of dental medicine. And in ruling, they observed that the board of uh, dentists was comprised almost exclusively of dentists. And they said that that's really not state action. What you've got there is anti-competitive activity. And for purposes of the Sherman Antitrust Act, you can't say claim state immunity. You're not acting as a state. You're just acting in an anti-competitive fashion. You bet. and we think that precedent is directly applicable here. The only difference being is this is a constitutional right in Tennessee. Well, good good luck with this. And with uh, 30 seconds left or so, Tammy, if you were to be able to talk to the governor face-to-face, what would you ask him and why, real quickly? I would ask them why did they uh, make that a law to um, take shampoo, um, make shampoo go uh, do uh, 300 hours. And I want to know why, why did you take that from us that something that was helping us uh, economically um, to be able to take care of our families, and it was a it was a, a great I mean a good living. It wasn't bad, you know. And I wanted to know why would they take that from us? Well, we're going to ask him. Actually, we're going to take this clip and we're going to call him up, and we're going to ask him. And thanks so much for what you do, Tammy, and what you're doing, and Braden and the folks at the Beacon Center. Thanks for fighting the fight, not only for Tammy, but for countless other women and men who simply want to be able to make a living without the encumbrance of the state throwing senseless rules and regulations at them. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. To hear all of these stories, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That is OurAmericanNetwork.org.
And that, of course, is our national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner. And by the way, we played the whole thing because you have to. And by the way, we knew you wouldn't turn it off. And we played that for you in its entirety because on this day in history, the Star Spangled Banner was adopted as the American national anthem in 1931. Throughout the 19th century, the Star Spangled Banner was regarded as the national anthem by most branches of the U.S. Armed Forces, but it was not until 1916 and the signing of an executive order by President Woodrow Wilson that it was formally designated as such. And then in March of 1931, Congress passed an act confirming Wilson's presidential order, and on this day in history in 1931, President Hoover signed it into law. There are a few other notes on this day in American history as it relates to music that cannot go without mention. Here's Jesse with the rundown. This day in music history, 1931, the first jazz single to sell a million copies was recorded. It was Minnie the Moocher by Cab Calloway. Most famous for its nonsensical ad-libbed scat that we've all heard before. Calloway would have the audience participate by repeating each scat phrase in a form of call and response. Eventually, Calloway's phrases would become so long and complex that the audience would laugh at their own failed attempts to repeat them. This day in music history, 1986, the Metallica album Master of Puppets was released. The third studio album by the heavy metal band peaked at number 29 on the Billboard 200 and became the first thrash metal album to be certified platinum. When Metallica played two shows in China in 2013, the Chinese government told them not to play the song, perhaps not wanting to harbor unrest with lyrics about being controlled by a greater entity. The band complied, although Kirk Hammett made sure to play the riff during their sets. This day in music history, 1998, Madonna's album Ray of Light was released in the U.S., a departure from her previous work. Ray of Light is an electronica dance and techno-pop album, which incorporates several genres, including ambient, trip-hop, and house music. Ray of Light has sold more than 16 million copies worldwide. The album actually gave Madonna her first musical Grammy of her career, as previously she had only won in the video category. This day in music history, this is Our American Stories. That was terrific, Jesse. We love them. Keep them coming. And I got to say, I'm, I'm, I'm dancing right now. I can't help myself. <laughs> and now it's time for a little transition, and hopefully not too shocking, but we love talking about random acts of kindness here on Our American Stories. And today we bring you a random act of kindness story from the most unpleasant of circumstances, a story from Francine Christophe, a Holocaust survivor from France. During the war, well, she and her family were Jewish. They were put in Bergen-Belsen, a Nazi concentration camp, where overcrowding, lack of food, and poor sanitation killed more than 35,000 people in the first few months of 1945. But even in this dark place, kindness overrode self-preservation. Here's Faith translating Francine's story. Je m'appelle Francine... My name is Francine Christophe. I was born on August 18th, 1933. 1933 was the year Hitler took power. Look, this is my star. I had to wear it on my chest, of course, like all Jews. 
It's big, isn't it? Especially for a child. That was when I was only eight years old. Now, when I was at Bergen Belsen camp, an amazing thing happened. Let me remind you that as the child of prisoners of war, we were privileged. We were permitted to bring a little something from France. A little bag with two or three small items. One woman brought chocolate, another sugar, and a third a handful of rice. My mom had packed two little pieces of chocolate. She said to me, We'll keep this for a day when I see you've collapsed completely and really need help. I'll give this chocolate to you and you'll feel better. One of the women in prison with us was pregnant. You couldn't even tell. She was so skinny. But the day came and she went into labor. And then she went to the camp hospital with my mom and the barracks chief. But before they left, my mom said, Do you remember that chocolate that I was saving for you? Yes, mama. How do you feel? Fine, mama. I'll be okay. Well then... If it is all right with you, I'd like to bring your chocolate to this lady, our friend Helene. Giving birth here will be hard, and she may die. If I give her the chocolate, it may help her. Yes, Mama, go ahead. Helene gave birth to a baby, a tiny little feeble thing. She ate the chocolate, and she didn't die. She then came back to the barracks, and the baby never cried. She didn't even wail. Six months later, the camp was liberated, and when they unwrapped the baby's rags, the baby screamed. That was when she was born. We took her back to France, a puny little thing for six months. Then a few years ago, my daughter asked me, Mama, if you deportees had had psychologists or psychiatrists when you returned, maybe it would have been easier for you. I replied, undoubtedly, but we didn't have them. No one thought of mental illness. But you gave me a good idea. We'll have a lecture on the topic. So I organized the lecture on the theme, if the survivors of the concentration camps had had counseling in 1945, what would have happened? The lecture drew a crowd. Elderly survivors, historians, and many psychologists, psychiatrists, and psychotherapists. Many ideas emerged, and it was excellent. Then, a woman came to the podium and said, I live in Marseille, where I'm a psychiatrist. And before I deliver my talk, I have something for Francine Christophe. In other words, me. She then reached into her pocket and pulled out a piece of chocolate. She gave it to me, and she said, I'm... Baby. And that's a beautiful story, Faith, and that's what we do here in Our American Stories, and particularly when it comes to the Holocaust and the connection between America and Israel forged back then, before there was the state of Israel, the connection between America and the Jews. By the way, that particular camp was freed by British troops, by the way, in April 15, 1945. British soldiers found 60,000 Starving, almost dead Jews, 13,000 dead bodies left unburied. And American GIs, as you remember from our hour with Dick Winters, liberated so many of the other camps. 
And again, that connection between America and the Jewish people forever forged in Europe in 1945 and during World War II. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and from time to time our own Jesse Edwards finds something for us that is so compelling so good so spiritually good that we must take the time to sit back close our eyes and follow him on a journey of self-discovery and enlightenment join us now as we travel to the farthest corner of the earth on an epic expedition of contemporary art Egypt, home of the Great Pyramid, believed to be built around 2500 BC, it was the tallest man-made structure in the world for more than 3800 years. What is it about this shape, this basic yet elegant, powerful structure that has inspired awe in the hearts and minds of humankind for so many thousands of years? Time after time, we see this structure assembled in all corners of the earth, from the Mayan and Aztec pyramids in Central and South America, to the Yasin pyramid structures in China. Even in North America, from the Luxor in Las Vegas, to the Bass Pro Shop in Memphis, Tennessee, this enigma continues to baffle scholars and the common man alike. Even on this very day, A dedicated team of dreamers is planning to erect the next symbol of ancient knowledge and mysticism known as a pyramid. This time, it won't be created using stone or glass. This time, the timeless structure of the pyramid will be crafted using a massive collection of VHS tapes from the 1996 romantic comedy Jerry Maguire. Starring America's favorite midget Scientologist, Tom Cruise. Who's coming with me? <coughs> Cuba Gooding Jr. A real man would not shop pooty from a single mother. And Renee Zellweger. You had me at hello. Hi, this is Jesse Edwards for Our American Stories. And what you just heard is, it's completely true. Uh, there are some people who are seriously planning on building a giant pyramid made out of thousands of old VHS tapes of Jerry Maguire. I first heard about it uh, a few years back, and then it just kind of disappeared, and I forgot about it. Until I recently came across headlines of a pop-up video store in Los Angeles that had nothing but thousands of Jerry Maguire VHS tapes on the walls, along with Jerry Maguire posters, Jerry Maguire playing on the TV screens, and 
Uh, they even had uniformed employees running the store. It is a video store made entirely of Jerry Maguire videotapes. We get so many different types of people coming in. I've had kids come in who have never been in a video store before, and this probably will be the last video store they're in. I think this, this video store can really, really make it in this town. It's uh, very timely. The idea of having just one movie to watch, I think that's really something we're looking forward to in the future. <laughs> okay, right about now is when you hear that record-skipping sound effect and I ask, what's going on here? What's going on here? So I had to get to the bottom of this. I I did a little digging around on the internet, and it turns out the guy behind this project is known as Commodore Gilgamesh. So uh, after some digging, I found his email address and gave him a call. He agreed to talk to us. Before we get to the Jerry Maguire pyramid, I had to find out who this guy is. My first question, so is Commodore Gilgamesh your real name? It depends on the situation, to be honest with you. I like to uh, to change it as often as possible, so I uh, can't be Googled efficiently. His real name is Nick Mayer. He and a few of his friends run a website called everythingisterrible.com. Everything is Terrible is a video and performance collective um, based in Los Angeles and a lot of other cities all around the country where we primarily take old video clips and re-edit them into like new psychedelic and comedy pieces that we put on the internet. So I've been doing that for almost 10 years. Um, and you know, I have a history in like video and performance and stuff. So that's kind of my, my main background. So how'd you get started collecting old VHS tapes in the first place? I've always been interested in this. I was, um, I got two VCRs for Christmas when I was like 11, I think, and started copying tapes. Um, I think that was probably the beginning. I made my, my basement of my parents' house into like a video store looking thing. I collected a bunch of posters and covered them in, in movie posters and had cardboard stand-ups everywhere and had made copies of all the movies. So um, I've been kind of on the same trajectory for a very long time. So, um, yeah, just always been interested in uh, in media, and all of us in the group are are hoarders of media and also creators. So we wanted to kind of combine our love of hoarding with our love of creating. So we kind of found the per- perfect little niche for that. So how many copies of Jerry Maguire do you actually own? I would say we have over 14,000 at this point. Um, since the Jerry, Jerry Maguire store has been open, they've been flooding in. So, um, yeah, over 14,000 copies. We, we, hope to, we hope to double it by the time we get to their final resting place, the Jerry Maguire Pyramid. Uh, so I imagine it's probably quite a logistical nightmare to collect and store all of that. How do you do it? It has made our lives very difficult over the years. Um, so we've been doing this for eight years, and um, we tour, and we get all these tapes given to us, and we have to strap them on top of our vans and cars and go to post offices and mail them to ourselves. And we've spent thousands of dollars uh, on this project and uh, an enormous amount of time. Uh, usually they, they used to live in our homes, just like stacked everywhere. Um, but in the last few years, we've had a studio where we've been able to store them uh, and they take up a lot of space there. I think we have six pallets filled with, with Jerry Maguire's. So people mail these things to you constantly. How, how many do you think you get uh, every week? Sometimes we don't talk about this for a year or so because we forget that we're doing it. Um, so it'll slow down to a trickle of, you know, at lowest, 30 to 50 tapes a week or so, and then at the highest, you know, 200 or so a week. So they're always coming in. So the, the obvious question, why Jerry Maguire? Uh, why did you come up with the idea to start hoarding VHS tapes at the movie, and where did they even come from? 
So the Jones wires was it was really just the uh, it is just the most natural way for us to get the most of a single piece of media. I think the, there there are many many Jerry Maguire VHS tapes out there. They have been forsaken, and we have decided that we need to rescue all of them. So uh, purely out of the numbers is, is how we got here. We just saw them over and over again at thrift stores while we were looking for the other um, the other footage that we use for for the videos on our website. And we originally just started taking photos of them and then started buying them and eventually put a call out on our website and in our live performances that we wanted all of them and we needed help. So that's really when it took off. Just all of our fans would not stop buying them and bringing them to us. And that's where they've all come from. Now tell us about the pyramid that you're building with these 14,000-plus copies of Jerry Maguire and VHS. In our efforts to save and preserve these artifacts of our culture. Um, we are working with a team of, of engineers and architects to construct a tomb that will be in the desert far away from our cities and, and towns and whatnot so, so as to protect them, uh, where all of the Jerry Maguire VHS tapes can live safely um, long after we're all gone from here. So um, we, that's what we're doing right now, and that's why we're asking everyone to to mail us uh, copies of Jerry Maguire or bring them to our shows and also to help out financially to help build this thing because it's literally the most important thing that any of us can be doing right now. <laughs> Is it going to be like an attraction people can actually go and see with the family? It's or? going to be an attraction, um, but one that it takes uh, a little bit of work to get to. We're not going to hide it from anybody. We're going to make it very clear where it is, but you're going to have to get there. It's, it's going to be a little bit of a pilgrimage. It's important for people to be in the presence of this many Jerry Maguires, and it's important <laughs> for them to, uh, you know, experience the, the journey to get there also. So you set up a mock video store in L.A. Uh, full of these tapes for sort of what, a, a performing arts installation? Tell us about it. When we were collecting Jerry's, as we, we lovingly call them, um, We've just joked about all the many things that we could do with them, and the thing that just kept coming up was opening a video store that carries only Jerry Maguire's. Uh, so, and it, it slowly became the beginning of the end for us. So, this is like the announcement of the pyramid, we're raising awareness, we're getting people in the room to, to feel the power of the Jerry's, and uh, hopefully, it's going to catapult this whole project uh, in, into the into the air here. How many people does it take to pull something like this off? Everything is Terrible is a pretty loose collective of five core members that have been around since the beginning and then probably like 15 others who've, who've come along and help out with specific things. Uh, but the, the Jerry Maguire Video Store, we have probably 40 volunteers working on it. How do people react to the video store? I mean, just walking down the street, you see this thing. What happens next? Half of the people who come into the store know about everything is terrible, know about the project, and they're just so pumped. <laughs> and then the other half, you watch them walk by, and they're just like mouths agape. They stop, they kind of walk by, then they come back, and then it's great. By the end, everyone is laughing and smiling because it's kind of inescapable how silly it is to see all of them together. And that's Nick Mayer, a.k.a. Commodore Gilgamesh. He's a guy with a collection of over 14,000 copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS who's planning on building a massive pyramid with them out in the middle of the desert. Because why not? To find out more about the project or to donate any copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS you might have lying around in your own collection, go to jerrymaguirepyramid.com 
where you can also find a link to donate to their GoFundMe page. For our American stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. <laughs> Thank you for that, Jesse. And I'm, I'm feeling the power of the Jerry's myself. <laughs> so is the whole team here. This is our American stories. Hey, we love talking about the American dream. This is one of them. The Jerry Maguire Pyramid. More after these messages once again. This is Our American Stories, and that's Jesse Edwards. We want more of these, Jesse. <laughs> A lot more of them. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look. This is our American stories for the hour. We're going to spend some time talking about the life of Gene Wilder. You know him from his work in the movies, and he passed earlier this year. And this last week here in Our American Stories, we're celebrating the lives of some of the greatest artists that we lost this past year, and Gene Wilder was among them. And after he died, we decided to do an hour celebrating his life, and we bring that to you now, once again. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the great Gene Wilder sing Pure Imagination from the 1971 movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And for the next hour, we're going to celebrate the life of this great actor who starred in so many of our favorite movies over the past 50 years. From the producers to Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein and so many others. Gene Wilder, stage actor, screen comic actor, and by the way, nobody did comedy better. And it's the hardest, hardest aspect of acting. Any actor will tell you this. Getting people to laugh is no duck walk. He was a screenwriter, a film director, and my goodness, he can interpret a song too. You just heard it. And an author as well. He was born Jerome Silberman on June 11, 1933 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the son of Jan and William Silberman, a manufacturer and salesman of novelty items. His father was a Russian Jewish immigrant, as were his maternal grandparents. Wilder first became interested in acting at age eight when his mother was diagnosed with rheumatic fever and the doctors told him to try and make her laugh. Here, Gene talks about that time in his life. When I was a, a little boy, I mean seven or eight, my mother had a heart attack and the doctor said, don't ever get angry with your mom because you could kill her. Make her laugh. And that was the first time I remember consciously trying to make someone laugh. And I did. I made her laugh, and my criterion was if I could make her pee in her pants, then I knew I had done something funny. I'm, I'm, I'm saying it, I, I don't, I'm not saying it for a joke. It's very true, I, because she'd say, now look what you've made me do. But, uh, but little boys and, and grown men are confident of what they do in life because of, of what their mothers told them that they were good at. And when I knew I could make my mother laugh, I felt I could make someone else laugh. And that's all I'm doing now, is carrying on the tradition. Indeed. 
At the age of 11, he saw his sister, who was studying acting, performing on stage, and he was enthralled by the experience. He asked her teacher if he could become his student, and the teacher said that if he was still interested at age 13, he would take Wilder on as a student. The day after Wilder turned 13, he called that teacher, who accepted him. Wilder studied with him for two years. Here, Wilder talks about his earliest influences as an actor and how he discovered his approach to being a comedic actor. When I was growing up, um, I heard Danny Kaye on a record before I ever saw him, before Up in Arms, and I thought that's what I'd like to do. Then I saw Up in Arms. But then when I was in junior high school, I started to, uh, my idol then was Sid Caesar. Unbeknownst, well, I didn't realize that Mel Brooks was writing most of the material, so I got to know Mel before I even knew him. But uh, then I saw Lee J. Cobb in Death of a Salesman on Broadway, and I realized that he was doing something different from what I had thought I wanted to do. It didn't mean that I didn't want to be in comedy, but I wanted to approach it in a different way, through character, instead of just stepping on banana peels and Mm. making funnies. Indeed, and that's when the best comedic acting occurs. When his mother felt that Gene's potential was not being fully realized in Wisconsin, she sent him to Black Fox, a military institute in Hollywood, where he was bullied primarily because he was the only Jewish boy in the school, according to his own account. After an unsuccessful short stay at Black Fox, Wilder returned home and became increasingly involved with the local theater community. At age 15, he performed for the first time in front of a paying audience in a production of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Gene Wilder graduated from the Washington High School in Milwaukee in 1951. Here, Gene talks about how he went from the name Jerome Silberman to Gene Wilder. I had just gotten into the actor's studio, which was a a big thrill for me. And I didn't want to be introduced as Jerry Silberman. I couldn't picture Jerry Silberman in Hamlet or Macbeth or something like that. And I had to think of a name overnight. And um, my sister and brother-in-law had a friend who's the fastest talker I've ever met. He started with A and worked his way up through the alphabet. When he got to W, he said, Wilder. And I said, that's the one I want. And then for the first name, it was because of uh, Thomas Wolfe's books, uh, Look Homeward Angel. And the hero's name was Eugene, but everyone called him Gene, who loved him. And... The web and the rock, and you can't go home again. It was always Gene. So I put the two together, and then I was introduced by Lee Strasberg as Gene Wilder. Because there, Ely Kazan and Shelley Winters and Rod Steiger and Paul Newman, and uh, I didn't want them to say, Jerry, what's your name, Jerry or Gene or what? So that's how it started. And we're going to hear more about this great life story, but what good luck on his part to land in New York at the actor's studio at that time. Lee Strasberg, who, if you remember, plays a remarkable part in The Godfather and is one of the great acting coaches in American history, teaching some of the great actors today that we all love and teaching them a certain methodology of acting called The Method. Some loved it, some didn't. But my goodness, the ones who lived by it gave us some of the finest craft ever. And in the end, it's what made Wilder so good. He, he decided to become the characters. And then we laughed, but he wasn't. And this, you see, even in Seinfeld to this day, that style, which is the, they're not slipping on banana peels. They're in character. George is in character. We just find that character hilarious. This is Lee Habib. 
This is Our American Stories. You're going to hear about Gene Wilder's life in his own words, a remarkable American life, which we celebrate here on Our American Stories. Jerome Silberman becomes Gene Wilder, and we'll pick it up right there after these messages. This is Our American Stories and more of our best of of the year from Our American Stories after these messages. This is Our American Stories, The Life of Gene Wilder. Following his 1955 graduation from Iowa, he was accepted at the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School in Bristol, England. After six months of studying fencing, Wilder became the first freshman to win the all-school fencing championship. No small feat. He was drafted into the U.S. Army in 1956, and at the end of recruit training, he was assigned to the Medical Corps and sent to Fort Sam Houston for training. In November of 57, his mother died from ovarian cancer. He was discharged from the Army a year later and returned to New York. A scholarship to the HB studio allowed him to become a full-time student. At first, living on unemployment insurance and some savings, he later supported himself with odd jobs such as a limo driver and fencing instructor. Wilder began his career on stage and made his screen debut in the TV series Armstrong Circle Theater in 1962. Although his first film role was portraying a hostage in the 1967 motion picture Bonnie and Clyde, Wilde's first major role was as Leopold Bloom in the 1968 masterpiece The Producers, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. This was the first in a series of collaborations with writer-director Mel Brooks, including 1974's Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, which Wilder co-wrote garnering the pair an Academy Award nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay. Here's Gene Wilder talking with Larry King about the moment he met Mel Brooks and how Mel Mel introduced him to a screenplay called Springtime for Hitler. I was in a play called Mother Courage by Bertolt Brecht, starring Anne Bancroft, whose boyfriend was Mel Brooks, and Mel came by to pick her up each evening after the show. And I was having trouble with one little section in the play. And he said, he gave me tips on how to act Brecht. He said, that's a song and a dance. He's proselytizing about communism. Just skip over this. Sing and dance right over it and get on to the good stuff. And he was right. That's the irony. And I did. Then he said, would you like to come to Fire Island with Annie and me? Uh, I'll read you the first 30 pages of a movie I'm writing. And I went to Fire Island. We went fishing on the surf, came back, had dinner, and then Annie and I sat down and he read 30 pages of Springtime for Hitler. That's what it was called then. And then he said, would you like to play that part of Leo Bloom? I said, absolutely. He said, all right, all right. So don't take anything in the fall without checking with me. September came and I was offered one flew over the cuckoo's nest, not the movie, 
the play with Kirk Douglas. So I called him and I said, I feel a little silly, but you said, yeah, 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 yeah. Can you get a four-week out in your contract? I said, no one knows me. I can't. No, they said, can you get a two-week out? He said. I said, maybe a four-week, because I'm not a star. All right, we'll have to live with it, he said. Three years went by. I never heard from him. I didn't get a telegram. I didn't get a telephone call. And I'm doing Murray Shiskal's play called Love on Broadway. Matinee, taking off my makeup. Knock, knock on the door. I open the door. There's Mel with a tall stranger. I said, Mel. <laughs> he said, you don't think I forgot, do you? <laughs> Classic. Wilder goes on to describe how Mel Brooks introduced him to Sidney Glazier and Zero Mostel. He said, this is Sidney Glazier, our producer. We're going to do Springtime for Hitler now. He said, but I can't just cast you. You've got to meet Zero first. Tomorrow, 10 o'clock, my heart was pounding. I got to the office door of Sidney Glazier's office. The door opens. There's Mel. He says, come on in. Z, he called zero Z. This is Gene. Gene, this is Z. And I put out my hand tentatively. And zero grabbed my hand, pulled me to him, and kissed me on the lips. <laughs> and all my nervousness went away. And then we did the reading, and I got the part, and everything was fine. Yeah, try that sometime, folks. Here's Gene Wilder and Zero Mostel from an early scene in The Producers where Leo Bloom, the accountant played by Wilder, throws an absolute fit when Max Bialystok, played by Zero Mostel, the producer, takes away his little blue blanket. May I speak to you for a minute? Go. You have 58 seconds. Well, and glancing at your books, I noticed that in the columns... Mark you have 48 the... seconds left. Hurry, hurry. Oh, uh, I glanced at your books, I noticed in the... 28 seconds. You're running out of time. Mr. Bialystok, I cannot function under these conditions. You're making me extremely nervous. What is that, a handkerchief? Nothing, that's nothing. If it's nothing, why can't I see? My blanket, my blue blanket, give me my blue blanket. I'm sorry. I don't like people touching my blue blanket. It's not important. It's a minor compulsion. I can deal with it if I want to. It's just that I've had it ever since I was a baby, and I find it very comforting. <laughs> oh, the physical performance by Gene Wilder is as good as the verbal, and Buster Keaton would be, well, looking down from heaven and just thinking, wow. In 1971, Wilder auditioned to play Willy Wonka on Mel Stewart's film adaptation of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Wilder was initially hesitant when he learned about the role, but finally accepted it under one condition. Here's Gene Wilder with that story. I'd read, read the book, and Mel Stewart, the director, came to my home in New York. And he said, you want to do it? I said, well, I'll tell you, I'd like to do it if I can come out and all the crowd quiets down, and I'm, I'm using a cane. Oh, my God, Willy Wonka is crippled. And I walk slowly, and you can hear a pin drop, and my cane gets stuck in a brick. And I do, I fall over on my face and do a forward somersault and jump up, and they all start to applaud. He said, what do you, Mel Stewart said, what do you want to do that for? 
I said, because no one will know from that point on whether I'm lying or telling the truth. He said, are you saying you won't do the film if, we, if you can't do that? I said, that's what I'm saying. Okay, we'll do it. And I meant it. He did mean it, and that's why Gene Wilder is Gene Wilder. Yeah, because that's not in the book. It is not in the book. When Woody Allen offered him a role in one segment of everything you always wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask, Gene Wilder accepted. Everything, the movie, was a hit. It grossed $18 million in the United States against a $2 million budget. Here is the scene from that film where Wilder plays a doctor whose patient informs him about his love for a particular barnyard animal. Come in, Mr. Milos. Come in. Sit down right over here. I just want to get some history on you first. So, your name is... Stavros Milos. And your address? Armenia. Armenia. I am from Armenia. I am visiting my brother. I see. Um, occupation? Shepherd. A shepherd? My whole family. Except for my brother over here, who is a rug salesman. Mm-hmm. Have you had any major illnesses? No. None. Good. So. Now, what seems to be the trouble? I'm in love with the sheep. I beg your pardon? <laughs> I am in love with the sheep. <laughs> oh, I see. See, doctor, up there in the mountains where I tend my flocks, it's so beautiful under the starry skies. And I am alone. And sometimes it gets so lonely. And the hours pass. And soon I desire a woman. But, doctor, there are no women. I'm not married and... Well, one night last summer, I saw her. Her? Daisy. Sheep. (laughs) (laughs) And how Gene Wilder plays this, how straight he plays it, is just one of the hardest things to do in comedy. And it's what made it so good. He just played the part. And, you know, sitting in front of me is a, a book called True and False by David Mamet, the great playwright and acting coach. And he continually says again and again, just do the words. Just let the words do the work. It's not about you. It's not about your performance. Let the words do the work. And let the character be revealed through the words. Actually, it sounds real simple. But you heard Gene Wilder in that conversation about a prior movie and his artistic decision. And you're hearing it again and again in each of these clips. You know, he plays the accountant and the producers, and he just plays it straight. And that's why he's so damn good. When we come back, young Frankenstein and beyond. This young actor becomes a mature and seasoned actor, and pretty soon, an internationally famous one. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story, celebrating the life of Gene Wilder. And more of our best of of the year from our American stories after these messages.
And you're listening to some of the theme music from Young Frankenstein. We're talking about Gene Wilder, his life. We're celebrating it here on Our American Stories. And after everything you always wanted to know about sex, Woody Allen's movie, Wilder began working on a script he called Young Frankenstein. Here, Wilder talks about the creation of that script, the casting of the film, and trying to get Mel Brooks on board on the project. I went back east, and it was... uh March or April, and I had a little place in West Hampton Beach, Long Island. And after lunch, I took a, a yellow legal pad and a blue felt pen, and I wrote Young Frankenstein on top. And then for two, two pages, I thought, what could happen to me if I suddenly found out I was an heir to Beaufort von Frankenstein's whole estate in Transylvania? And I finished the two pages. I called Mel. I told him, well, he says, cute. It's cute. That's all he said. And then later on that summer, Mike Medavoy, who was my agent at the time, you got anything for you and Peter Boyle and Marty Feldman? I said, what made you think of that company? He said, because I now handle you and Peter (laughs) and Marty. I said, well, with a wonderful artistic basis, uh, as it happens, I think I do. Send it to me. I said, no, give me another day or two. And I wrote two more pages. The Transylvania Station, almost verbatim the way it is. And I put an ending on it. Track 29. Yes, yes. And uh, Mike Medavoy called me and said, I think I can sell this. What do you think about Mel directing? I said, yeah, I'd love it, but you're whistling Dixie because he won't direct something he didn't conceive of. Now you have to remember that Mel spent two years on the producers and made $25,000 a year. He spent the next two years on the 12 chairs, $25,000 a year. Neither one made a penny. Joe Levine made money, but yeah. Mel didn't. They were offering him 250000 or 25000 or whatever to direct this. And he said yes. He called me. He said, what are you getting me into? I said, nothing you don't want to get into. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Next day they said, we signed Mel. Having just seen Marty Feldman, and by the way, that's the actor who played Igor, on television, Wilder was inspired to write a scene that takes place at Transylvania Station where Igor and Frederick meet for the first time. The scene was included in the film almost verbatim. Dr. Frankenstein... Frankenstein. You're putting me on. No, it's pronounced Frankenstein. Do you also say Froderick? No, Frederick. Well, why isn't it Froderick Frankenstein? It isn't, it's Frederick Frankenstein. I see. You must be Igor. No, it's pronounced Igor. But they told me it was Igor. Well, they were wrong then, weren't they? Of course. I'm sure we'll get along splendidly. Oh, sorry. I, uh, you know, I don't mean to embarrass you, but I'm a rather brilliant surgeon. Perhaps I could help you with that hump. What hump? (laughs) What hump? Young Frankenstein was a huge success, with Wilder and Brooks receiving Best Adapted Screenplay nominations at the 1975 Oscars, losing to Francis Coppola and Mario Puzo, for their adapt- adaptation of The Godfather Part Two, 
Shortly after Young Frankenstein, Wilder and Brooks set out on another film called Blazing Saddles. Here, Gene talks about how he was nearly cast for another role. I wanted to uh, play the Waco kid, the part that I did play. And Mel said, no, 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 I want to, you're too young. I want an over-the-hill alcoholic. I got Dan Daly, who's going to play it. He wanted me to play Harvey Corman's part. I said, I'm all wrong for this. And um, six weeks went by. Dan Daly begged off because he had just finished some directing something. So they got Gig Young. Gig Young got into the costume, makeup, on the way to the jail cell, and foam started coming out of his mouth. He was on the wagon suddenly and withdrawing. And Mel thought he was acting, you know, some method acting. He said, good, keep doing what you're doing. And, uh, and then he passed out. And Mel said, it's a sign from God. He called me from the, s the phone on stage. He said, can you come tomorrow? I said, I'm supposed to go to London to do uh, The Little Prince with Stanley Donnan directing. Beg off. The next day I was on a plane, and the next day I was hanging upside down in the jail cell. And here's Gene Wilder introducing himself as the Waco Kid from this scene in Blazing Saddles. I don't know if you ever heard of me before, but I used to be called the Waco Kid. I was just walking down the street, and I heard a voice behind me say, Reach for it, mister. And I spun around, and there I was, face to face, with a six-year-old kid. Well, I just threw my guns down, walked away. Little bastard shot me in the ass. <laughs> so I limped to the nearest saloon, crawled inside a whiskey bottle, and I've been there ever since. In 1975, Wilder's agent sent him a script for a film called Super Chief. Wilder accepted, but told the film's producers that he thought the only person who could keep the film from being offensive was Richard Pryor. Pryor accepted the role in the film, which had been renamed Silver Streak, the first film to team Wilder and Pryor. They became Hollywood's most successful interracial movie-comedy duo. Here, Wilder talks about that chemistry he had with Pryor, and how they always found it easy to improvise with each other. I hope this comes out right, but it's a little bit like sex. You know, when you, <laughs> when you meet someone and the chemistry is there, you don't know why, you don't know how, but it's there. I met him the night before we did our first scene. We hugged, we did the first scene, and he said something and I said something, and it wasn't in the script after the camera started rolling. And it went very well, and I, he said, did you know you were going to say that? I said, no. Did you know you were going to say that? He said, no. I never improvised in a film before. In, in classes I did, but not in a film. But with him, I always improvised. Because if you don't, you're not going to be anywhere, not with Richard. In 1980, Wilder teamed up again with Richard Pryor in Stir Crazy, directed by Sidney Poitier. Pryor was struggling with a severe cocaine addiction at the time, and filming became difficult. But once the film premiered, it became an international success. Here's Gene Wilder talking about his approach to acting, the choices he makes, 
and his thoughts on show business. I studied for altogether maybe 18 years. I got accepted into the actor's studio. I would approach doing Leo Bloom in The Producers in the same way as I would do Death of a Salesman. But the choices would be different. I would make comic choices. But the acting process, create a human being who's real, not only to the audience, but real to me. And so I, I think if you want to say the, uh, you're a method comic actor, yes, without getting into what method is, but uh, a Stanislavski comic actor, yes, because I'm trying to do it the same way I would. I don't, I don't mean this to sound, uh, I don't want it to come out funny, but I don't like show business. I love acting in films. I love it. I like the show, but I don't like the business. And when I go to a restaurant and they're talking 3.6, 9.8, and how many, what the budget, and, the, and everyone is a, a writer or a director or an actor or a producer, and it, it just makes me nervous. And that's Gene Wilder talking about his craft and the business. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories and the quintessential American story of Gene Wilder. More after these messages. You're blue and you don't know where to go to. Why don't you go where fashion sits? <laughs> Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes, or cutaway coat, perfect fits. <laughs> Dressed up. This like is our American stories. And was there anything Gene Wilder couldn't do? We learned that he worked for and with Sidney Poitier, and they became fast friends, working together on a script called Traces, which became 1982's Hanky Panky, the film where Wilder met comedian Gilda Radner. And that was in August of 1981. It would change his life. When filming ended, Wilder found himself missing Radner, so he called her. The relationship grew, and the couple married in September of 1984 in the south of France. Anyone who knows the story of Gene Wilder knows about the deep connection he had with Gilda, whose life was tragically cut short by ovarian cancer, that same cancer that took Gene's mother. Here together, Gene and Gilda talk about their relationship shortly before her passing. To me, it's irresistible. A funny man is irresistible more than any looks, more than any... She anything. was always a sucker for a big a, laugh. A sucker for a laugh. I, I'm the best audience. She is my teacher because she tells the truth more than I do. When I am faced with a really tough one where I, I get hurt, I withdraw into what Gilda calls a dot. Dot man. And she <laughs> will lambast me until I have the courage to get angry with her, respect her enough to get angry with her and let her have it, not in order to punish her, but to say what's truly on my heart, what hurt my feelings, because if you harbor it, it comes out in another way. But if you say it at the time, it's gone. Five minutes later, it's gone. Maybe the next day. <laughs> or possibly in three years. But it does go yeah. away. Twelve years ago, it wouldn't have worked. At this minute, right here, 
now specifically, yeah, we're happy. I'm, yeah, we're happy. Yeah. Here, Gene Wilder talks about keeping romance alive in a relationship that's been going on for a few years. I feel very strongly from my own experience and from what I've seen in the world that when it hits that way, that classic way that we hear about, it's not sex that men are looking for. When they have a good woman, children, it's adventure. They want a reaffirmation that they're a man. So they, they think that they'll find it by conquests. And if, if husbands and wives or, or people who are living together can keep alive the romance in their relationship so that when the egg is running down the corner of your mouth in the morning and the breath isn't quite so good or there's a little toothpaste on the side of the whatever, you know, after two, three, four years of that, you start to think of, well, where's the romance in my life? But couples can keep romance in their lives. Wilder explains how Gilda kept him grounded and got his attention, ultimately changing his life. Gilda was different in this respect. She said, uh, I'm here for a purpose, and that's to get you to wake up and smell the coffee, not be off in the clouds someplace, listening to Mozart or Jacques Brel, but to be here with me. And when you feel anger or you feel something on your mind, you say so right now, here and now. I'm not a perfect woman that you've been searching for all your life. I'm just little imperfect Gilda. And if that's what you want, a real love, I'm your best bet. And that changed my life. Wow. Here Wilder talks about Gilda's untimely passing and the misdiagnosis of her cancer early on. She kept seeing doctors, and they said, no, everything's okay. What are you worried about, they would say, and she would say, I'm worried I have cancer. Well, it's nothing life-threatening, they said. And she used to complain that they don't believe me, they don't believe me. If she had been diagnosed nine, eight, seven, six months before, um, I'm not telling you that I know but I would bet my bottom dollar that she'd be alive today. I thought she was going to pull it out. I never thought she would die. Never. And sometimes she would grab my hand and look at me, stare right into my soul and say, really? Really? And I'd say, if I could live as long as you're going to live, I'd settle right now. And I meant it. I thought that I would die before she did. I thought she would make it. After her death, Wilder spent several months researching cancer and contacting experts to figure out what went wrong, why his wife wasn't given a simple test that would have detected immediately whether she had ovarian cancer. In May of 91, he testified before Congress advocating for patients. Then he co-founded Gilda's Club, a nonprofit organization with local chapters all over the United States, which provides social support for cancer patients and their caregivers. He also gave Radner's name to the Ovarian Cancer Research Program at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. In this clip from the 2003 compilation Voices for Gilda, a tribute to benefit the Gilda's Club organization, Gene Wilder shares a short, touching tribute to his deceased wife. The song Ohio is a number from the 1953 musical Wonderful Town. Gilda and I used to sing this little song by Leonard Bernstein from the musical Wonderful Town. We sang it for our closest friends at intimate little dinner parties when everyone was supposed to get up and do something. I was always nervous getting up and doing something, but Gilda and I sang this song, 
and it made us feel better. Once in a while, we even sang it alone at home when we were feeling a little lonely. Why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why did I ever leave Ohio? Why did I wander to find what lies yonder when life was so cheery at home? Oh, wandering while I wander, why did I stray? Why did I roam? Oh, why, oh, why, oh, did I leave Ohio? Maybe I'd better go. Oh, maybe I'd better go home. Wilder spent most of his time painting watercolors, writing, and participating in charitable efforts. In 98, he collaborated on the book Gilda's Disease with oncologist Stephen Piver, sharing personal experiences of Radner's struggles with ovarian cancer. Wilder himself was hospitalized with non-Hodgkin lymphoma in 99, but confirmed in March 2005 that the cancer was in complete remission following chemo and a stem cell transplant. Wilder died at the age of 83 on August 29, 2016, at home in Stamford, Connecticut, from complications of Alzheimer's disease. He had kept knowledge of his condition private, but had been diagnosed three years prior to his death. Jordan Walker Perlman the nephew child of the legendary actor, wrote this statement to honor the special person in his life. And I quote, It is with indescribable sadness and blues, but with spiritual gratitude for the life lived that I announced the passing of husband, parents, and universal artist Gene Wilder at his home in Stamford, Connecticut. It is almost unbearable for us to contemplate our life without him. The cause was complications from Alzheimer's disease with which he coexisted for the last three years. The choice to keep this private was his in talking with us and making a decision as a family. We understand for all the emotional and physical challenges this situation presented, we have been among the lucky ones. This illness pirate, unlike in so many cases, never stole his ability to recognize those that were closest to him, nor took command of his gentle, central, life-affirming core personality. It took enough, but not that. The decision to wait until this time to disclose his condition wasn't vanity, but more so that the countless young children that would smile or call out to him, there's Willy Wonka, would not have to then be exposed to an adult referencing illness or trouble and causing delight to travel to worry, to disappointment, or to confusion. He simply couldn't bear the idea of one less smile in the world. He was 83 and passing holding our hands with the same tenderness and love he exhibited as long as I can remember. As our hands clutched and he performed one last breath, the music speaker 
which was set to random, began to bear out one of his favorites, Ella Fitzgerald. There is a picture of he and Ella meeting at a London bistro some years ago that are among each of our most cherished possessions. She was singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow as he was taken away. This is Our American Stories, the life of Gene Wilder. place behind the sun Just a step beyond the rain Somewhere over the rainbow Way up high There's a 